1: Hello, I'm Scott Lipkowitz, and you're listening to New Books in Military History, part of the New Books Network. Erich Ludendorff is a contentious figure in military history. Focused, energetic, and hailing from humble origins, Ludendorff rose through the ranks of the largely aristocratic late 19th century German officer corps to play a leading role in the First World War. As a field officer at Liège and Tannenberg, as a driving force behind the development of the Siegfried Line and as the architect of the 1918 German Spring Offensive, Ludendorff consistently demonstrated a formidable military acumen. Over the past century, that wartime record garnered more than its fair share of respect from numerous First World War scholars. But those who look upon Ludendorff's martial prowess with admiration face a dilemma. How to reconcile Ludendorff's military achievements with his abhorrent post-war activities and beliefs. The one-time Quartermaster General of the German Army, did not acquit himself well in the post-war world. Germany's surrender in November 1918 strongly contradicted Ludendorff's reputation as a Feldherr or battle lord. Trying to comprehend that disconnect led Ludendorff down a path of anti-Semitism, conspiratorial thinking, right-wing nationalist politics, fringe spirituality and flirtation with Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime. Overwhelmingly, Ludendorff's biographers have explained away these sordid details by attributing them to a nervous breakdown Ludendorff suffered in August 1918. But, writing in his most recent work, Dragonslayer, The Legend of Erich Ludendorff in the Weimar Republic and the Third Reich, published by Cornell University Press, historian Jay Lackanard argues that questions of Ludendorff's sanity are besides the point. Whether sane or not, Ludendorff was an influential figure in Weimar and Nazi Germany, a position he maintained, Lackenauer contends, through the conscious construction of a mythic identity that personified far-right politics, pagan spirituality, and the German public's thirst for revenge. Joining me today to discuss how this mythic identity came into being and its consequences for Germany during the interwar years is Jay Lackenauer. Jay, welcome, or should I say welcome back to New Books in Military History. Well, it's, uh,
0: it is great to, to be back in a sense. I was a, a host for many years and uh, having now finally finished a book that I've been working on all, for almost all those many years, I'm, I'm glad that it can be featured on the, on the show.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure and honor to have you back on. Can you start us off maybe just with a quick potted bio for those who may not be familiar with you and tell us how you came to be fascinated by Eric Ludendorff?
0: Um so I went to the University of California Berkeley back in the in the 80s where I in fact as a senior thesis I think um or it could have been an honors thesis actually wrote about Eric Ludendorff and and uh, Paul Hindenburg and the Third Supreme Command I I left that topic for many years I got a got my PhD from the University of Pennsylvania I uh, currently teach at Temple University where I've been now for 25 years which is kind of hard for me to believe but a long time at Temple, but I've had the, the pleasure to teach again at Penn and at the United States Air Force Academy and a, a few other places, Franklin and Marshall. So um, I've uh, I've been around a little bit, but I find myself in, in currently in in at Temple University and and loving it there. I don't in terms of the the interest in Ludendorff, obviously dates uh, back many decades to my to my undergraduate days. And it was in, I think, 2004 that Richard Levy asked me to contribute to an encyclopedia of anti-Semitism. Okay. Uh, and normally, uh, you know, it doesn't really contribute to your to the tenure and promotion process to write short pieces like that for an encyclopedia. So I would have said no, except that he asked about Eric Ludendorff, about whom I thought I knew a lot. Um, his publishing company, about which I knew nothing, and his second wife, Matilda, who was also a mystery to me. So I was intrigued enough to, to write those art encyclopedia articles. And that began the long, slow process of trying to uncover the rest of Ludendorff's story. I can, I can elaborate a little bit on that. I mean, we, Eric Ludendorff is obviously a famous character, especially in military history. Um, there have been volumes and volumes written about his involvement in the First World War but almost nothing about his post-war career. Most biographers, even the people who focus on Ludendorff as a person, uh, have him sort of riding off into the sunset after 1918 to c- c- go nuts and and uh, flirt with Adolf Hitler and so forth. That's almost the best that they do. And there's obviously much more to the story. That, that's uh, what I was writing about mostly with Dragonslayer.
1: Yeah, you make a very compelling argument that the received wisdom that Ludendorff basically just had a nervous breakdown and then just dived right off the cliff into oblivion is not the case and it actually makes rational sense if you know other things about his life and the culture that he lived in. So I wanted to start by asking you maybe just sketch out the, the main argument of the book for us because I think. Many who are familiar with the Ludendorff story are not familiar with this assessment. Okay,
0: so it's I, you know, I became convinced that he is a much more important character in terms not not just in, in a military sense, but in terms of the evolution of German political culture in the nineteen twenties and thirties. The this, the significance of anti Semitism, the, the stab in the back legend that convinces so many Germans seemingly that they hadn't really lost the First World War, that something some injustice had been done and that needed to be righted. So. At least in those two areas, I mean, he's really uh, he's really fundamental to the story of the rise of the Nazis and the the uh, development of the Holocaust and the Second World War. There was a recent biography that I won't even um, mention by name that tries to make the argument that Ludendorff was the was the engineer of the Holocaust, and I I don't go that far, of course. Um, that took a, a, a special com- confluence of factors in the Nazi party and Hitler's ideology and and many other factors beside. Uh, But in terms of the the virulence of antisemitism in the Weimar Republic, I think Ludendorff uh, plays an important role, not as as an originator necessarily, but as a popularizer and a legitimator of of antisemitism. In terms of the stab in the back, I mean, the, the, the title of the book comes from the connection that I began to see with the Germanic folk hero Siegfried from the Ring of the Nibelungen, who, um, I mean, there's many parallels that we can talk about at some point uh, during this interview, but uh, that I think also was important in terms of cementing Ludendorff's place in this political culture, because it was a story that resonated, that all Germans knew, and that, that resonated with so many, so many Germans and aspects of life in, in the Weimar Republic,
1: especially. Can you go into a little just for those of you who might not be familiar what the Siegfried myth actually is?
0: Right, so that became a really tangled um, part of this story. But it was it, it's interesting if you if you if you practice history, you've probably experienced this. Where um, I was writing, I had intended to write a biography of Ludendorff, birth to death kind of story. I thought that seemed pretty straightforward. You, just, you know, it's got to be easy to do, right? Turns out <laughs> not to be the case uh, for reasons again we can talk about, but. I was in the archive and, uh, reading, I was at Penn actually in the reading, the main Nazi party archive, which is on microfilm in many locations, the Nazis thought when they, when they thought they were going to win the war, they were planning to build a museum to the Nazi party. So they were gathering materials, even as the war was going on. And then when they lost, they had, there was this big pile of documents and we microfilmed it all. And so it's an important resource for, for the story of the early Nazi party, especially. And, um, I was going through the microfilm and, and I came across this right wing newspaper from 1923 and its headline read, Siegfried ist, or Ludendorff ist unser Siegfried. Ludendorff is our Siegfried. And it just hit me like a brick. Like I'd done enough of the spade work in advance to, for this to all come together at that one moment that, oh my God, this is the, this is the connection that he's, that other people are making, that he's you know, consciously forging, that he's subconsciously also, I think, kind of playing along with that, that his story is parallel to the story of Siegfried. So I began to learn a lot more about Siegfried. And uh, it's important to say that this is not the Siegfried of the Wagner operas, which is significantly, uh, a significantly different story, but of the medieval epic poem, The Ring of the Nibelungen, which again was taught in schools and educated Germans would have, would have virtually all read it. And certainly the story was out there. Um, Fritz Lang makes a, makes a two-part movie of the story of Siegfried in the 1920s called Siegfried's Death and Krimhild's Revenge. Krimhild is Siegfried's wife. And the basic story is is this. I realize I'm, I'm beating around the bush before telling listeners what the story is actually about. So Siegfried is a he's a prince in a royal household in Germany, and just refuses to take on his responsibilities or to assume the throne simply by virtue of being the son of the king. So he needs to go out and prove himself in the world he uh, learns to become a blacksmith, he apprentices with a blacksmith, he forges his own sword, uh, encounters a dragon and slays it, bathes in the dragon's blood, acquiring invulnerability, something like Achilles, right? Um, and But I, unbeknownst to him, a, or a small linden leaf has fallen on his back. He knows about it actually. but um, And so the protective magic doesn't work in this one particular spot. And this becomes important because as he goes out later, and and Mary's the daughter of the King of Burgundy, and has many fantastic military exploits and defeats this enemy and that enemy, and then jealous courtiers in the in the court of the King of Bur- King Gunter of Burgundy conspire to murder him. And One of them finds out about this vulnerability. They lure Siegfried to a hunt, and during this hunt, the one of the one of the conspirators Hagen uh, stabs literally stabs. Siegfried in the back with a spear, throw, throws the spear at him and it hits him in the back. So it's more or less equivalent. So Siegfried dies, Kriemhild grieves for many years, eventually marries Attila the Hun and invites uh, the, after many, many years, you know, to indicate that, that the feud is over, invites the Burgundian court to Siegfried or to Attila's uh, castle, where she has them locked inside this one giant hall he sets it on fire and there's a huge battle that ensues where all the burgundians are all but two of the burgundians are killed so she gets that's and there's a little bit more than that but that she gets her revenge Mm -hmm. and so to me that the arc of that story the unconquerable hero who is betrayed stabbed in the back by this by this evil person who then is lured you know and then and but then ultimately kriemhild gets revenge on behalf of siegfried is the story and i'm not the first to make the story that that uh, to make the argument that the story of of revenge is appealing to germans and in many ways that's what hitler cultivates by by cultivating the stab in the back myth but the with ludendorff in particular you see so many parallels to the story this notion that he is the the genius of war the the mastermind of the german war effort in world war one the victor of liege and tannenberg how could he possibly have lost this war and he, for personal reasons, and I think the larger society, for uh, for other reasons, begin to, you know, drink this Kool Aid about about the the fact that Germany wasn't defeated, uh, and then to seek revenge. So they must and to explain the defeat by by some sort of conspiracy, and obviously conspiracy is a big part of the story as well. Uh, again, he Ludendorff cooked up this notion of the supranational powers, uh, Jews, Freemasons, and Catholics who control the levers of the world and run everything, basically.
1: So you just mentioned Liege and Tannenberg and all good mythic heroes have a origin story. And in the book, you argue that this is kind of his origin story where he first kind of pops into the public consciousness. Can you talk about, not about the battles themselves, but about their significance to Ludendorff's public persona? And how they, you know, how if at all did he capitalize on them?
0: So this is this is a biography in in a sense that I do tell you when he's born and I tell you about his education and his childhood. But the the meat of the book really begins with the chapter on Liege and Tannenberg, which established his his myth as this great uh, military figure. He adds many elements to the story even before 1914, so we can come back to that. But in terms of Liege and Tannenberg. Um, Liège was an important fortress complex um, in Belgium on the border with Germany that was the first domino that the Germans had to knock down in order to accomplish the Schlieffen plan, the, the plan, their plan for um, conquering France in just a few weeks in order to uh, shift forces to the east and stop the Russian juggernaut, which would, they assumed would be gaining steam. So Ludendorff, when he'd worked on the general staff, had actually concocted the idea for a, what he called a a, a coup de main, a, a surprise attack, although it didn't really surprise anybody, but a, a rapid attack on Liege that would um, quickly capture the fortresses and allow German fortresses to pass through, even if some forces, Belgian forces remained there. Um, it doesn't quite go as planned. The Germans suffer lots of casualties. There's a lot of controversy about how to assess the battle itself and, um, And so i won't belabor those but but certainly ludendorff's role both in the planning but then more importantly when the war begins that's where he's sent and it's not a coincidence he was in kind of an exile for making some political enemies he's brought right back and sent into into the battle at liege with a kind of um he's kind of a minister without portfolio general without portfolio he goes where he wants he he eventually takes command of a regiment that is the first regiment inside the city um, so he's, it's really an important, it's important for the German army. It's a very important part for, uh, Ludendorff's story, partly because he shows tremendous personal bravery. I mean, he takes, takes control of this, uh, of a brigade, of a brigade, excuse me, not a, not a regiment, but a brigade after its commander is killed and, and leads them from the front and, you know, says, come on boys, you know, don't leave me to go on alone and, and drags the men after him. And it's pretty, I think it's, very widely accepted that this is a true story. I mean, lots of people attest to, to his, his role, his bravery under fire and so forth. And so it earns him the Pour le Mérite, the, the highest German, uh, military honor. He's the one of the first two Germans to receive it during the war. So it's, it's the, part of this, the personal warrior soldier kind of mythology that, that is important for his myth. He links it directly and through his, his enormous, uh, authorial output, he was a, he was just writing constantly after the war, um, to the Beer Hall Putsch. So in 1923, when the march through through Munich is going on, there's this mythology that builds up around Ludendorff's role. He, he basically has the idea for the march as a show of force, as a way of generating um, uh, support among the people of Munich, and then hoping that that would catch fire somehow and spread to the, uh, wider. He's at the front of the march, side by side uh, with Hitler. And when the when the um, when the column is fired upon, and everyone else, you know, drops, flees, takes cover. There's the story is again. This is all about stories. Ludendorff alone remains standing, or maybe he quickly gets up after after an initial after taking cover initially, and walks through the police corridor. Cor- excuse me, police cordon. Uh, by himself and they they don't shoot at him they dare not stop him and finally the commander the police commander that's there uh kind of taps him on the shoulder and says excuse me you know Herr general would you mind uh, coming with us to the station and he what goes along and is is briefly detained but is allowed to go home at the end of the night while the other, other people you know Hitler obviously flees and is later arrested so this 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 idea of personal bravery was very important in establishing his his authority as a military figure as a as a As a great man,
1: you also know, too, he assumes the title of Feldherr or or Battle Lord. And that seems to be quite consequential in that the chapter where you deal with his time at the Third Supreme Command, 1916 to 1918, is mostly arguing against this that he's failing to grasp some reality, either strategic and political. And he seems to be my impression was that he's a true believer that everything that he espoused, he actually onboarded and kind of synthesized into his own identity. And it seems to me like there was a deep disconnect between his how his persona of the failed hair, the, the battle lord, and the actual reality on the ground. Is that a fair assessment and do you think that's where he kind of st- – he begins to exhibit more of the fringe thinking at this period? Like is this where it starts to creep in and he believes that there are supranational powers at work or is this – is there just a through line even from a period prior to the war?
0: So this is where the, the issue of sources comes, comes into play. Um, in part this is a book about ludendorff as an author so I, I, you know it's the story not simply as he told it obviously i'm critical i bring in other sources and 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 so forth but it's important how he tells the story and the feldherr idea actually dates back i think to tannenberg because immediately after the battle of liege or shortly thereafter he's summoned to take command in east prussia where the russians are two russian armies are threatening german territories in the east and the The commanders there are not confident of their ability to hold off the russians so Ludendorff is 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 brought out of liege sent to the east along in company with paul von hindenburg they meet on a train for the first time and and start to make plans already as they travel to the east and they win a, a, a remarkable victory again i won't go into the details dennis showalter has a book on tannenberg which i think is the the definitive one it's, a, it's just a remarkable victory of an underdog, a much smaller German force. The Eighth Army was a fraction of the size of either of the two Russian armies that were approaching, and they basically outmaneuver and encircle first the second army, and then they chase off the first army. Um, but for the second, arm, second Russian army is basically destroyed, and it's this phenomenal victory. And importantly for the, for the story and for many Germans, it was a, a quote-unquote defensive victory. The Russians were on German soil so it wasn't a matter, and that was they used that constantly to try to deny the the aggression of 1914 this wasn't a war of aggression this is clearly a war of defense look at Tannenberg. so ludendorff was eager to, to tap into that uh, uh fame also which proved not just personal bravery because that wasn't that was less involved in terms of his position there but his operational genius and i think most most military historians would say Operationally, he was pretty brilliant. The campaign in Poland and in Galicia, they were masterpieces. And largely, I think historians credit Ludendorff rather than Hindenburg. There's a, we can talk about that issue too. That relationship is, is important as well. But operationally, he's pretty good. And ultimately, of course, they defeat the Russians in the East. Uh, after the after he becomes uh, the first Quartermaster General of the Third Supreme Command in 1916, which is really as you as you began to say, the foundation for this Battle Lord myth, because after 1916, after his appointment to the Third Supreme Command, they're basically running the the entire they're running Germany, essentially the dictator of Germany. The the best uh, biography of of Ludendorff in German is by Manfred Nebelin, uh, called uh, Ludendorff dictator in the First World War, and it's and it's true they ran the meat, they had their fingers in the media, the economy certainly, you know, in terms of uh, allocating raw materials, you know, obviously st- uh, strategy and operations were under their purview. Basically, they're running the German war effort. Uh, so that's the basis of his Feldherr moniker, and uh, it was you know he kind of insisted his followers would all call him that. You know, they, it was almost a you know you, you weren't allowed to call him anything else and he bristled when someone else got called something similar or you know certainly if someone else were referred to as a he'd get all he'd get all pissy
1: certainly a cult of personality there yeah no kidding and we, we'll go into that it
0: gets worse but and and i think you're right that i am i am generally less impressed with his tenure in, in the third supreme command in terms of its results obviously i don't i, I didn't necessarily want the, i don't want the germans to win the war but he is certainly largely responsible for their for their loss in terms of his leadership during that period, um, unrestricted submarine warfare, continuing to, he sided with the annexationists, which complicated peace negotiations. Uh, you know, he sabotaged any peace negotiations that, that arose because he thought he could win. Uh, he drove Germany uh, in, over the edge. And as many people have shown, you know, in this, the spate of uh, writing that has, has arisen over the centennial of the war itself, as I think, again, just the good the good stuff anyway has demonstrated that the German army was done by by the summer, by the late summer of 1918. If not, if not, then with desertions and, and things like that. That's that's been, I think, pretty readily proven.
1: Yeah, and the, their downfall eventually leads to Ludendorff's ignominious exit in October of 1918. And you note that in exile, I guess, is where his writing career, his prolific writing career really begins. And I found it interesting, the idea that had he stayed, you know, the counterfactual, what if he had stayed and he was writing in the middle of the November revolution and the chaos that's, that immediately preceded? Did the fact that he spent almost a year outside just writing, disseminating his ideas and, and crafting his narrative from a relatively safe space help rehabilitate his reputation like did his reputation suffer because he had left and then was he able to rehabilitate it to a large degree because he wasn't actually there and was only communicating through the written word
0: yeah, so I don't. His exile, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember when he comes back, but I don't think it's a year. He writes that first memoir, and this is a, this is remarkable. Well, let me tell you the story of his exile. First of all, is kind of funny because he flees to Sweden via Denmark. He plans to go to Denmark first, and then people find out he's there, and so he has to keep going basically, and finds refuge in Sweden. But he travels under the name Ernst Lindström. Um, because he had learned from reading spy novels and, and with literally a, f- a fake mustache and, and glasses and the whole thing, because um, he'd learned from reading spy novels that your, your alias should correspond to your uh, initials so that you don't get caught by your luggage. You know, if your luggage says E.L. and you're going by Fritz Werner or whatever, you're going to get nabbed. But so he went by Ernst Lindstrom. So there's a lot of things about that period next. On That's really a great question because I hadn't thought about the, the role that place played in, in that story. But he's there so briefly, I think. Uh, again, what's re- what I'm recalling is something like three months. He writes the whole thing t- that he comes back. But nevertheless I think probably you're probably right being in a peaceful retreat sort of so to speak may have influenced his point of view you know not seeing firsthand the, the the tumult it did concern his reputation you know to flee like that he spent a lot of time justifying the flight in terms of the real danger to his life which I think is probably not untrue that if somebody you know if the revolutionaries had gotten a hold of him it might not have been a happy outcome for him, or he might have been sent to the Allies for, for trial, something like that. So and there's probably a lot of truth to that. But nevertheless, for this man of honor to have have fled his homeland was clearly a concern that he tried to he continuously tried to to rationalize and justify and it's and it relates and so there's another theme in this that that this theme of kind of honor honor versus what they would have referred to at the time as hysteria right or loss of nerve is an important theme at Tannenberg because there's a moment in the battle of Tannenberg where according to some people ludendorff panics and thinks that they that they haven't uh, that the russians are where they aren't and that they're in some danger and the story goes that hindenburg manages to kind of calm them down and say don't you know don't worry about it and then the battle turns out so brilliantly. Ludendorff also spends the rest of his life trying denying this rumor that there had been any panic, and of course it shows up in Hindenburg's memoir. A moment of, of waffling, but even even in that memoir, it's not, it's not Ludendorff that waffles. It, Hindenburg uses the word "we." You know, we developed concerns about. He uses some kind of language like that, and that still gets at Ludendorff that that's that's Hindenburg accusing Ludendorff of panicking. And so, this notion of panic, which would have been tied to his masculinity so so firmly, he, he's very concerned to make sure that that stories like that don't have any any legs.
1: His sensitivity over his masculine bona fides is definitely his his linden leaf. But it seems like he was getting oh, nudged crazy. there many many a time.
0: The other the other concern the other concern in terms of his honor, and and this plays both ways in some ways, and it, and it links to the Siegfried story. Ludendorff is not an aristocrat. There is no fun in his name, even though you'll see this, even in scholarly literature to this day, Time Magazine had him on the cover uh, sometime in the 1930s, I think, 20s, and it showed him, the caption read, "Eric von Ludendorff, and that's not correct. Siegfried, of course, was an aristocrat. He was a uh, a prince, but that insistence on being a self-made man, of going out and making your own way in the world and not taking advantage of your royal background, becoming a blacksmith and so forth that 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 self-made myth is part definitely part of Siegfried's story and Ludendorff clung to that and was and was quite obviously and uh, proud of the fact that he had made it in this aristocrat dominated Prussian army that, that without the fawn he had he'd been on the general Staff he'd had all these privileged positions he never quite rose to the top and that you know that's why you know the fact that Hindenburg had had to be at the top because he was Hindenburg und Beneckendorf right and he's got two fawns in his name that clearly graded so that that psychological aspect is is important to to his self esteem, his self awareness.
1: Now, at one point, they both stand trial in Germany for war crimes, and that's something that I also, or I guess it's a hearing; it's not really a trial. I guess it's a hearing in the book.
0: Yeah, I think what you, what you're thinking of is the hearing before the Reichstag, where the Reichstag investigates the causes of the defeat, and they want to interview. Hindenburg and Ludendorff. So it's not, it's not a trial.
1: And what I was found fascinating about that is, that it, one, it's an a, a opportunity for Ludendorff to exonerate himself, essentially, publicly. And uh, forgive me if I'm mistaken, but it also seems like that's the beginning of the friction between Hindenburg and Ludendorff. And I was wondering maybe if you could go into a little more about that relationship, because they start out in the war as a, a unit. A happy marriage. They refer to it as the happy marriage. And by the twenties and thirties, there well, it seems like one side is particularly unhappy with the other. Well, it's true. Ludendorff is much more publicly h- hostile to Hindenburg, and it it begins early,
0: a little bit after that that hearing in front of the Reichstag. I, I wouldn't link it directly to that, but it becomes you know, Ludendorff. Let me let me step back a little bit. When when Ludendorff is dismissed basically by the Kaiser, that occurs at a meeting in which Hindenburg is there. Ludendorff is is dismissed. He leaves, and he's expecting he, as he did later tells the story, he expects Hindenburg to resign as well. In you know, there were a team after all. Why wouldn't they both resign? Hindenburg comes out of the room and indicates that he's still in command, and that for Ludendorff was a, was the first of many betrayals. other words, the uh, so they their relationship was tense. They come back together. They cooperate in making this testimony before the Reichstag. And then gradually, uh, you know, the lack of recognition that Ludendorff feels like he's receiving relative to Hindenburg, who was this great popular figure and, and then the the the, the parent snub on page eighty six of of Hindenburg's memoir, right? That begins to kind of fester, and and eventually becomes a full blown full blown divorce. In the case it was to use the marriage metaphor again, to where when they're together at events, which is not very often, but at Tannenberg every once in a while, they would they would be together. He wouldn't ride with Hindenburg, wouldn't shake his hand. So it became quite a, a public affair. I wouldn't say Hindenburg's entirely blameless for this, and words Wolfram, uh, Wolfram Peter's uh, biography of Hindenburg, again also in German, if you read German, it's brilliant, really makes clear how clever Hindenburg actually was. you know we, we have him, have the sense of him as this like doddering old grandfather figure, but man, he you know he was in charge of his own public image and and seems to have outmaneuvered Ludendorff in the sense that friends of Hindenburg got Ludendorff to take. Some critical passages out of Ludendorff's first memoir that were critical of Hindenburg, and Ludendorff agreed to do so, and then Ludendorff endorsed Hindenburg's memoir, apparently before he certainly before he became fixated on this one passage that he deemed critical. So, in one, in one sense, he hadn't said anything bad about Hindenburg in his in his first memoir. Hindenburg he, he endorses Hindenburg's memoir, and then when Hindenburg's memoir turns out to be Again, I don't think it's really critical, but when Ludendorff interprets it as critical, he can't really do anything about it because he's already endorsed it. So in that sense, he's kind of outmaneuvered by, by Hindenburg, and that just makes him even more enraged, I think.
1: Now, we talked a little bit – we touched upon it, the the putsch's the Beer Hall Putsch in particular in 1923. How did Ludendorff come into contact with Hitler? And can you also speak a little bit too because what little I've read on this subject, they foreground Hitler because obviously he's – Adolf Hitler, and there's a lot of gravity there. But as you touched upon a little bit, you foreground Ludendorff's role. So, how did they meet, and how did that initial relationship develop?
0: You know, it's funny having having written a book, I've actually forgotten how they actually meet. It's it's either Dietrich Eckart or, or Gottfried Feder or Rudolf Hess. I can I can never quite keep it straight. But very early on, in other words, uh, well, two two things about this. Well, let me let me just step back for a second. You're, you're absolutely right about the gravity of Hitler. I mean, Hitler is this black hole that just draws everything in, in, into itself. There is a famous photograph from the trial after the putsch of the, uh, the uh, defendants on the steps outside the courthouse. And, you know, who is the person in the middle? Who's the person that the photogra- photograph is centered on? It's Eric Ludendorff with his picklehaube and his medals and all this kind of stuff that appears in, in the book. Hitler's this dumpy guy in a trench coat standing next to him, and that picture is often cropped to show Hitler and Ludendorff as equals and side by side in a in a photo of just the two of them. But in fact, from that photograph, it's obvious Hitler Ludendorff is a much bigger figure by this point. So that many early Nazis would would attend events that where Ludendorff was either present or speaking. The you know these German Day celebrations and other other events like that. So they were gravitating towards. Ludendorff, you to, to hear his ideas and he, because he was this prominent character. So, again, if I apologize, you know, it's in the book, but I can't remember off the top of my head how they actually first meet. But the point is that it's long before the Beer Hall Putsch. It's, it's well, you know, months and months before the Beer Hall Putsch. And so it really can be considered to be, you know, not the Hitler Putsch, but but, but the Hitler Ludendorff Putsch. He's, a, he's an absolutely critical figure in the in the evening itself, when it as it takes place, he's the one that convinces the Munich officials to to at least temporarily agree. He's the one who is able to rally certain important elements, the cadet school and so forth, to to uh, to join with the putschists. So he has a much more important role to play than than I think is popularly assumed.
1: Is this where the virulent anti Semitism starts to creep in, or is that? residual from his time in Oberost? And then how instrumental was Ludendorff in seeding the National Socialist Movement with some of its more, you know, like Lebensraum and the things that the Nazis would later become infamous for?
0: I I wouldn't attribute Ludendorff so much with with originating anything that the the Nazis developed, but they're both sort of cooking out of the same you know cookbook in other words the the, the milieu in germany in, after the war is you know that the development of anti-semitism certainly doesn't come from ludendorff in fact I'd, I'd say it's that environment that infects ludendorff in a way because if you i read his memoir very carefully i certainly you know i did text scans and so forth he has virtually nothing to say about jews period and i wouldn't say anything that's terrifically anti-semitic you're right in when he was in charge of Oberost, which is this kind of German military colony in the Baltic. He certainly would have encountered Jews. He certainly talked about the people that lived there as being kind of backwards and, and, you know, incapable of civilized behavior and so forth. But I don't have the sense that he particularly meant the Jews. He cooperated with Jewish individuals on many cases in that environment. I think it reflects more kind of an anti-Polish or, you know, anti-Slavic Sentiment than anything specifically anti-Semitic. That is to say, he he was probably as anti-Semitic as most people, you know, of his class and and of the military were, but nothing spectacular as as later turns out. And so I think it is, and so it doesn't show up in the memoir, and it doesn't really begin to show up until I think it's 1922, the publication of one of his books that you begin to see. That was the earliest point where I could see kind of documentary. Evidence of anti-Semitism, and I think then as as he begins to participate in more of these right wing affairs, he it it takes firmer hold, and that's something that I think is even if it doesn't come out in the book maybe as clearly as it as it could have. When he talks about the supranational powers, this this worldwide conspiracy, Jews are Jews are very very important to that. But he spends most of his day worrying about Catholics. He writes and, and I feel like his attention is much more heavily focused on Catholics. And that, and that might have been the, and the imaginations of the Vatican, kind of an anti-Catholic mentality. So it's linked to Jews, of course, because in this, in this rambling conspiratorial religion that, that Matilda invents, Catholics are, of course, Christians and Christ was a Jew and, um, and the Bible was written by Jews, both the Old and the New Testament were written by Jews or former Jews, or you know, they, they and this is the way anti-Semites uh, rationalize all of this. So, in some ways, even the Vatican is is part of a Jewish conspiracy. But I think on a on a day to day basis, in terms of where the where where he spent his time, it seems like he was as focused as much or more on on Catholics and the Catholic menace.
1: So you just mentioned Ludendorff's Kriemhilde who is his second wife. What was her role in Ludendorff's evolution as a radical right-wing figure? And you mentioned she has a like a weird worldview, which I'm not going to pronounce because I will get it wrong. I'll leave that to you, Jay. But how does that all kind of coalesce? This weird worldview, her actual influence, and Ludendorff's you know natural character.
0: So Matilda Ludendorff, mm-hmm. he, he did have a, a a marriage to a woman named Margrethe, that dissolved in 19, again, my memory of the book, (laughs) 1926. They were finally uh, granted a divorce, at which point he marries Matilda. She was born um, Matilda Spies. She was a medical doctor and uh, studied something like psychiatry, actually treated officers and soldiers during the war for for, uh, psychiatric disorders. She wrote a book in 1919 called Erotische Wiedergeburt. I can't think of how I translated that in the in the book, but the erotic rebirth, I guess, is the is the translation of it. She wrote a lot about kind of women's psychology and 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 things like that. So she was a fairly well known figure, and, and unusual in the sense that she would earned a medical degree as a, as a woman. She was one of the first female medical doctors in Germany. She be, she moved in these right wing circles, the same circles that Hitler and Ludendorff were moving in. She spoke at various events and developed this i I'll, I'll give it the the honor of being called a, a religion a philosophy she called herself a the philosopher sometimes called that became to be called deutsche gott Erkenntnis, or the germanic understanding of god they later found an organization called the league for the germanic understanding of god and i i i began when i was very early on in this project to try to to try to really understand this this philosophy to to, to on a rational level and just sort out its tenets and be able to, to be able to describe it at least. And I gave up, it's impossible. But I mean, there's some things that I, that I understand. It's very esoteric, but, um, she posits that every race and by race, it, she meant in the terms of the late 19th, early 20th century, you know, the French race, the Italian race, the, the Nordic race, whatever, uh, the Latin race, and uh, every race has its own indigenous spirituality that is native to itself. And to practice another race's spirituality is alienating. And, and you you end up becoming, you suffer all kinds of psychological illnesses and things like that if you practice an a, an alien spirituality. So her idea was to get Germans back to some notion of ancient Germanic religious practice you know being and it's it's almost a kind of it, again if you if it weren't so virulently anti-semitic in the end you could almost cast it as a kind of new age spirituality getting in touch with nature self-fulfillment that sort of that sort of thing comes into that's part of the language a lot and that was the key to both to happiness but also to kind of national strength that's where Ludendorff comes in that's where the the Two of them kind of work together in this project of national regeneration. There's got to be there's got to be military strength. There's got to be proper kind of strategic thought, but there's also got to be spiritual release. And so the the problem for Matilda that she saw in the Germans is that they're Christians, and Christianity, according to her, is, a, is an alien philosophy invented by Jews using ancient Hindu texts that she claimed to have read and to have been one of the only Westerners to have access to these ancient Hindu texts that form the basis of both the Old and the, and the New Testament, the, the New Testament primarily. And that's how they trick, in her view, uh, Europeans for the, for the most part to become Christian at, at the time. And that's how they're managing to control by, by getting people to live in fear, essentially, of damnation. By inventing these these superstitions like heaven and hell, or you know, obviously virgin birth, and getting them to believe in miracles and things like that, was was blinding and almost almost kind of hypnotizing Germans and other Europeans into doing the bidding of these of these conspiratorial powers. She's so very frustrating uh, to to read her work. It's as I said, it's really esoteric and fundamentally anti-Semitic as as well. Sure, one of our more famous books. But the, what distinguishes Ludendorff in many ways from Hitler, and, and especially after their their break in 1925, is uh, Ludendorff's anti Christianity because because they link Christianity to Judaism. Ludendorff's Christian, anti Christianity f- serves to marginalize him clearly. I mean, his he he may have had as many as 100,000 followers at some point, which is not not a you know not. None, uh, but certainly most Germans were going uh, to remain aloof, if not hostile to the philosophy that was so openly anti-Christian.
1: Did that get him in more trouble with the Nazi regime once it, once Hitler takes over as a chancellor in the 1933? Did that cause the most friction? Because it seems like his, his anti-Catholic leanings, in particular, definitely are come through in the book, and it seems like his criticism of Hitler is less important because he's useful to the Nazis as a lightning rod for nationalist identity and that his anti-Catholic, anti-Christian is more problematic because it creates political problems for the Nazi regime.
0: Yeah. So, so the way I describe it in the book, and there's lots to be said about his, the the transition into the third Reich and and Hitler's and uh, Ludendorff's what happens to him and his followers Clearly, his followers suffer a great deal of discrimination after more discrimination after 1933. Partly because, especially in places like like Bavaria, new, new when if a local Nazi took a you know was, was happened to be also Christian, they could they could take a special they could pay special attention to the Ludendorffers and, and discriminate against them and and there are countless examples of them of Ludendorff's followers being denied jobs or being denied promotions in the army or entry into the army, not able to practice their, um, being able to practice their beliefs and so forth. So they do face a great deal of discrimination, but on the, on the larger scale, I think in terms of, and certainly in terms of Ludendorff himself, he's basically untouchable because of his early association with the Nazis, because he's such a, you know, a war hero popular in the sense that he's so strongly identified with Germany's successes during the war, but also with the defeats, obviously in his case, and because many prominent Nazis still kind of respect him. They don't necessarily want to be around him because he's, he's so prickly and, and annoying and they can't stand Matilda. But Himmler, for example, is a frequently intervenes to make life easier for Ludendorff and his followers. And of course, him- Himmler is known for his kind of um, pagan spiritual tendencies, and there's a lot of affinity there with the Lu- 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 ideas that Matilda espouses. And Goebbels is like a fan He's a fan of Ludendorff. So if you read Goebbels' diaries, the first time he meets him, it's like a, it's like a you know it's like meeting the John Lennon or something like that. He's a he's a huge fan. So I think no one is inclined to do anything about him, despite the fact that even into February and March of 1933, he's publishing anti-Nazi uh, cartoons and articles about what you know how 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 dangerous the Nazis are because they're part of this conspiracy. This ultimately part of this jewish conspiracy uh, to destroy germany and uh, and that's the thing that's i think kind of the the punchline of the book is that ludendorff is an anti-nazi but from an even more kind of radical anti-semitic idea which is not to say that he would have come up with something like like holocaust and genocide but he was he was deeply committed to a philosophy of anti-semitism and and promulgated this idea that, that Jews were a threat to Germany and, and that the Nazis were part of it. And he, so like like many conspiracies, this is kind of an interesting part too, that relates unfortunately to, to today in some ways, like many conspiracies, he has it, he has it kind of perfectly wrapped up, although there are still you know cracks in this in this armor that will ultimately disintegrate it. But the main the main the most important political parties in Weimar Germany were the Center Party, which was the Catholic identified in, in, with the Catholic Church and the Social Democrats, which were the socialist, you know, the Socialist Party, and of course, there's a because of this idea of Judeo Bolshevism wasn't quite around yet, but the notion that socialism was was Jewish was was a staple of anti-socialist and anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric, and so um, and because the Catholic Church is controlled by the Jews, because they believe in Jesus, who was a Jew, and they read his writings and they follow his teachings, the 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 Jews are going to kind of have Germany coming or going. So if either the, if the Social Democrats are dominant, the Jews are in control of that. The if the Catholics are dominant, the Jews are in control of that. And then to 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 put the icing on the cake, he argues in the late twenties and early thirties that that the Nazis are part of this Jewish conspiracy. So if the Nazis somehow, you know, after nineteen thirty, when they become um, they, they have all this electoral success. He, he begins to argue that they, they're part of this Jewish conspiracy too. And so there's, um, it's this phenomenal, you know, so the Jews have, have Germany coming or going, and it works similarly with the, the supranational powers. If he had an enemy, if he thought someone, you know, someone he wanted to tarnish, if they were Jewish, even an assimilated Jew, you could usually, you know, you knew they, they were, relatively open about it or they had a name or they attended a synagogue or whatever you could you could tell catholics of course in germany despite the the discrimination that they could potentially face at times didn't hide the fact that they were catholic and so that that was relatively easy the perfect one is freemasons If, if if someone you wanted to tarnish wasn't obviously jewish or obviously catholic then they must be freemasons and freemasons are a secret society so they won't tell you so it's you know it's perfect and they A lot of his correspondence, sorry, a lot of his correspondence involves people writing to him or him writing to other people. Do you know if so-and-so is a Freemason? Is is so-and-so a member of this lodge or something? You know, so we're maddening in many ways.
1: Yeah, I was going to say there's a a hydraulic quality to conspiracy thinking. It's easy to just push it in any direction. One other thing, too, that I found interesting was that and this is something you bring up earlier in the book, is that the idea that he likes to operate from the shadows, which is, sh- sh- or, you know, behind the scenes, which is striking for a, a man as egotistical and taciturn as he seems to have been. And one thing that in this period after, from, I guess, after his marriage to Matilde that seems to be central is that he's trying, or at least I, I got out of this, was that he was trying to promote his wife's work above all else. I, I guess to me, it just, it just seemed odd that somebody who is as narcissistic as he seems was more interested in promoting his wife's work than his own and the potential, you know, like political and social penalties paying for that.
0: So I wouldn't say that the shadows is probably not the right way to, to think about that in the sense that he in the beer hall puts, he's right out front. Right. Uh, he tra- later tries to deny responsibility, which I think is, you know, it's, Maybe it's maintaining plausible deniability. Then yeah. that he, after the fact, tries to say, "Oh, I just showed up. You know, I happened to be driving by when I saw this putsch happening." And um, and that's you know that's basically his argument at the trial, which is part of the reason that Hitler upstages him so dramatically at right. the trial because Ludendorff's testimony is, is really weak. He tries to disassociate himself with the cop putsch in 1920. And he's clearly the mastermind behind of that. He's at every important meeting. He's at the Brandenburg Gate when important things are happening there. I mean, he's and then he claims, "Oh, I was just out for a walk." You know, so it's it's. I think maybe having been burned by the war, where he was, you know, he, he was such a prominent figure that mm-hmm. um, that he has this tendency then to want to maybe not stay in the shadows, but to able to deny that he was ever responsible i think it changes when he begins to promote his life's work uh it's less because in many ways he says that and i think but i think in some ways that's just him being noble right i'm mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not here about myself i'm i'm promoting matilda she's the one that's that's so important because most of his writing is really about himself there's, there's kind of a, a a division of labor within their publishing company where she writes the spiritual stuff and he writes the historical stuff and the historical stuff not, not all of it is about him um, but a lot of it is and the stuff that isn't he doesn't have as much involvement in so they write books about how Mar- uh, martin luther was murdered by jesuits or you know it, it, they have all these different books that range throughout time but the the vast majority of his authorial output relates to world war 1 Or kind of prophecies of future war. He writes a book called Total War about, about how best to organize your society, you know, the, the the balance between civil and military power, mostly that the military guy should be in absolute control. While he mixes into that, all the, all the, the supranational power language, it's all in there. But, um, he's really writing about himself and his own experiences. And in many ways, that was important for their success. I mean, they made a, the indications are. I don't have their their checkbook, but the indications are they made a lot of money doing this. Um, they were constantly berating uh, people who were involved in the publishing house for not selling enough, and to sell more and to sell more, and to try to you know slip slip pamphlets into people's hands so that when they're on the train, meet them on the train so that they can sell more books. And, so they were pretty clever at making a lot of money out of it. And I think it was that division of labor that was important. And that, I think that shows again after Ludendorff dies because the the publishing company really starts to go under. The number of followers declines pretty rapidly. But there were a lot of people that were involved, not not so much for Matilda's um, wisdom, but because of the, the, the hero of the war, what he had to say many of them were former soldiers for people who had served with him in some capacity. Uh, so
1: once he dies, which is in 19, 1937, yeah, December, his myths achieves a new height, I think, in that, you know, like all good myths, it's being put to use for some political or social or cultural purpose. And we we talked a lot about the friction between Ludendorff and the Nazis How did the Nazis interpret his death, and did they find a new utility in in him once he had passed into the great beyond?
0: So after the Nazis took power, as I mentioned, there's some discrimination of Ludendorff's followers. Ludendorff himself is largely untouchable. There was a lot of panic uh, around the Night of the Long Knives in June 1934 when the leadership of the SA was murdered by the Nazis and, and many other enemies beside there were some Ludendorffers who were convinced that they were next, or that their group was going to be wiped out. Ludendorff, I, I don't believe, was in any actual danger, uh, partly because, and the evidence for that, I think, is partly that some of his associates, high-ranking associates, knew about the, knew that the putsch was coming. And there's a letter that I found between Robert Holtzmann, who was Ludendorff's kind of um, link to the army leadership in Berlin and to Himmler. He's corresponding with with Ludendorff's, let's call him, you know, kind of business manager secretary, and um, in the immediate aftermath of the of the Night of the Long Knives, one of them writes to the other, "Oh, the events you the events you said were coming turned out even better than we'd planned. They finally got that old one seventy one er which is a, a slang term for for a homosexual uh, room." So they, you know, I think Ludendorff himself was in danger at that point. But what what brings about the reconciliation is the army's desire after the d- death of Paul von Hindenburg to use Ludendorff as a kind of symbol of the old army and as a shield against further incursions by the Nazis and in, in meddling into the army's leadership. I, I they believe that they could kind of use him as a buffer between the, the encroachment of the Nazis and to protect the old army. It was a very thorny negotiation carried out largely by Ludwig Beck. There are a couple other people accompanying him at various points. Ludwig Beck was the uh, chief of the general staff who ultimately resigns uh, to his credit over Hitler's apparent plan to, to begin a war of aggression. Uh, he's also uh, allowed to kill himself in the aftermath of the 20th July conspiracy because he was uh, an important figure in that conspiracy to kill Hitler in, in 1944. But Beck goes to Ludendorff repeatedly in the course of 1934-35. I mean, there are frequent visits where he's trying to kind of, you know, soothe his nerves and and uh, convince him to kind of come back into the fold to come out of the out of the out of exile, so so to speak, and rejoin the uh, rejoin as a symbol of the army. It, it it goes through various phases of success and failure. Ludendorff obviously put, presents enormous demands for his, you know, his reputation to be restored, for his followers to be allowed to do this, that, and the other thing for his censorship of his newspapers to stop and so on. And again, with more or less success over time, those things take place. And finally by, I guess the, f- the first event is the introduction of conscription. By the time that happens in nineteen thirty, March of 1935, Ludendorff is, uh, makes uh, some positive statements about the great things that, that the Führer is doing for the country and how glad he is to see the old army restored and so forth. So basically, by 1935, with more or less success, Ludendorff is reconciled to the, to the situation, at least, if not to Hitler personally or anything. So between 1935, say, and 1937, when he dies, there is more or less a truce between the Nazis and, and the Ludendorffers. Hitler and Ludendorff certainly exchange pleasantries either in the newspapers or in kind of personal statements to the other. And so when Ludendorff gets sick uh, and is hospitalized in, in uh, late 1937, November, there is a sense that he will, if, you know, should he die that he will be brought into the kind of pantheon of, of Nazi heroes for sure. For sure. Um, their arrangements are made for a, a state funeral I believe even while he's alive, they you know they discuss with him where he'd like to be buried and so forth. He insists he does not want to be buried in the T- Tannenberg Memorial alongside Hindenburg, so that that feud still rages. He wants to be buried in in Tuxing, where he has his villa outside of outside of Munich. So when he does in fact die, it, there is an enormous outpouring of of sympathy, of praise, of of plaudits in, the, in every newspaper in Germany. Every prominent Nazi sends a statement to Matilda about how sorry they are to see the, the, the great Feldherr pass on. There is an elaborate, elaborate state funeral held in Munich, planned by the same person who planned Mussolini's recent visit, which, which had just transpired, and extensive coverage in the paper for days and days and days of the planning for the funeral, the funeral um ludendorff's career it was obviously it was a big event uh, abroad as well and in fact there were a number of um uh somewhat sympathetic i mean one doesn't speak ill of dead i suppose uh even in british and french newspaper coverage in british and french newspapers the germans just gushed and gushed and gushed about what a what a great hero he was they compared him to atlas and to um frederick the great and uh, you name it frederick nietzsche he was you know for his for i guess for his philosophical insights, uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of, uh, over the top praise of, of Ludendorff, but, but in fact, that's kind of the beginning of the end for the Ludendorff group. Uh, they do, tr- I mean, they exist to this day in very small numbers in Germany. They maintain a publishing company and still sell um, Matilda's works and, and Eric's, uh, some of Eric's works. So they're still around in, in very small numbers, but that begins the decline. A number of their members are drafted and, and some killed obviously during the war. Um, Ludendorff – or Hitler shuts off the paper supply at a certain point in the war when things start to become a little bit scarce. And one post-war critic said of that decision it was the nicest thing that Hitler ever did for the German people was to prevent Matilda from from continuing to publish.
1: Matilda, as you note though, like Cream held, ultimately had her revenge in that she was able to manipulate the system after the Second World War to allow her to continue to publish both her own works – and those written by Eric. Did her continued activities as a publisher influence how we've come to understand Ludendorff or in any way contribute to his lionization in certain circles? I wouldn't say necessarily
0: through their work. They try a couple of times, and uh, I, I'll get to this later, but they try a couple of times to change the story in a way that would make him a little bit more palatable. I think you know the focus on his military career... To the exclusion of his post war, you know, association with the Nazis and other, other activities is in a sense a lionization in that, in that he, though Germany was ultimately defeated and he played, she had a lot of responsibility. He was, he was a powerful, important person. He, that he was also despicable doesn't really come through in that, in that half of the story so much as it does in the other half. But what they do is, um, so Matilda's first, denazified as a resistance figure if you can believe that for all of her and eric's anti-nazi writings i guess the courts just sort of breezed past that and and um, but she was such a de- despicable character and had made so many enemies over the years that a guy named winfried martini basically makes it his life work to to expose her, writes a book called The Legend of the House of Ludendorff that gets the court case uh, reopened by pointing out what an incredible anti-Semite she was and how closely associated with, with Nazism they had, had been at various points, certainly Nazi ideas. So eventually she's she's banned from speaking, she can't be a public teacher and, and so forth and all the restrictions that are placed on people with Nazi associations. She fights it though, and the, the group is notoriously litigious. Uh, they, you know, they're lots, involved in lots of coast court cases after the war. In their argument, on the basis of religious freedom, they could they should be allowed f- to speak freely, not only because of freedom of speech, which is curtailed by anti semit, you know, the the, the restriction on anti semitic speech, but he, uh, that they are it's part of their religious beliefs. And by various subs the court case is complicated. You can read about it in the book. It goes back and forth a little bit. Eventually, the constitutional court does lift the ban on the group after her death, and hence they can continue to publish their books. They can they still cannot avoid the restriction on anti Semitic speech, and so they're very careful. A lot of the books have a weird preface that says, "When we refer to Yuda, or, you know, Jew." Yuda in this book we don't mean the jewish people we don't mean individual jews we don't mean jewish you know organizations we mean this this conspiracy this that's running the world and and by that they're able you know in in veiled ways to refer to jewish continued the continued influence of jewish uh, conspiracies in in the world but only you have to really you know Again, sadly, having spent so much time with this, I am I am fairly well trained, and you have to be pretty well trained to spot it sometimes. But it's in there.
1: You know all the secret code words now, and all the all the veiled references. There's one that's really brilliant. I mean, it's it's striking.
0: They write in nineteen in the 1950s they publish a book called um, Siegfried. So another clear connect, trying to stilt a link to that Siegfried legend, and it's the story of Arminius, who is Hermann the Carusco, the winner of the the victor at the Battle of the Toitoburg revolved in, what is it, 7 or 9 AD against the Roman legions of, of Varus, right? And so it's that story, but with making the argument, which again is not entirely unique, that um, that Arminius or, or Hermann is the basis for Siegfried, the Siegfried story. And so in the course of this, of course, Arminius is fighting against Rome, which is the way they referred to the Vatican and this Catholic conspiracy so that's an obvious connection and um, the Romans are are served by this race of people who are basically merchants and worship Mercury who is the god of trade and they're you know they are ruining their you know they steal from the Germans and and uh, charge exor- exorbitant interest and things like this and you're like oh really I wonder who wonder who this is supposed to be so They weren't terribly clever about it, but they, they carry on. They're very concerned now. The group is very concerned now about Muslim immigration and they, they try to, they're trying to make that kind of their, their issue.
1: Not, sir, not surprising, sadly. So what should we, what should we take away from the study of Ludendorff's life and career? I mean, the book, I guess, is in many ways a revisionist history because it goes against the received wisdom up until this point. You know, and as you said too, there, you know, there's certainly a homology between radical right wing beliefs today and the resurgence in anti Semitism and supranational conspiracy theories. Is Ludendorff's story a, a cautionary tale about the power of mythic identities and whether you know self made or, or otherwise?
0: So I think it, I I I hope it, it indicates in some ways the ways in which those those types of conspiracies and political movements operate. You can't ever draw direct parallels in history. In other words, history doesn't actually repeat itself. But certainly there are many parallels in terms of the, the way anti-Semitism operates and continues to operate in the world. It's linked to conspiracy theories. The way and I think the most important lesson is the way that I mean, ultimately the Second World War is the product of this big lie about what happened in World War One. That that the Germans hadn't actually lost the war and it's not the only thing obviously but it's very i think it's really critically important in terms of in terms of poisoning the well of, of weimar democracy and and enabling people like hitler and ludendorff and obviously hitler with a great deal more success to mobilize people in the service of of a cause that ultimately becomes not only destructive of their enemies but destructive of themselves and and uh, you know, to me, that's and based on the, uh, some of my other work too. I think the you know, the example, the, the minatory example that the World War II, that World War II set for the Germans was an important part of of the success of West Germany after the war in democratizing and becoming stable and so forth. I mean, I think a lot of there are some people sincerely realized where this had led them and didn't want to do that again. But I think it helps to. To be reminded every once in a while. And so then Ludendorff's role in kind of poisoning that well, I think, is has been ignored by this, by this notion that he's insane. And and he, maybe he is. I don't, I can't really diagnose. He's clearly there's you know he's got some odd ideas, but so did Hitler. And and we don't dismiss him or not study him or his ideas because they were equally insane, if I'm qualified to, to quote that.
1: Yeah, I think reading the book. It's uh, but not clear, but it, it seems that Ludendorff's belief in these fringe elements and his own importance make rational makes it all makes sense when you fit it into that rational framework. Even though for us today and probably you know for many even then it was not sane or didn't appear to be sane. So
0: no, I was saying that yeah, the way he organized it, I think both on a personal level. And then through the Siegfried story, I think that that explains his influence at a, at a broader level. Uh, again, not with everyone, as you say, you know, there were lots of people who still hated Ludendorff because they blamed him for losing the war and many other things besides. So that has to be has to be noted. But yeah, it was the way it was the ability to to delude himself and for many people to delude themselves about the reality of the situation that was a big part of the problem in, in the Weimar Republic. I think.
1: So we have two final questions. These are more fun questions, more lighthearted questions. The First one is now that this book is on the shelves, what, what are you looking forward to next?
0: So my next project is on sports and war or sports in the military. I haven't quite decided which direction it's gonna it's going to go. I'm working at the moment on East and West Germany from 1945 to 1990. And the fundamental question is, why do militaries... Spend so much time and energy on sports, and there are some obvious answers. I think uh, and it should be obvious to any any listener. But I'm I'm hoping to uncover some less obvious ones. And then the flip side of this is, why do do soldiers and other mil- military folks participate? What do they hope to get out of it? There's a there's this there's this assumption on the part of. Uh, Anybody who writes about sports—not not historians and sociologists and forth—who well, write from a critical perspective, but people that are involved in sports—that it has all these great positive effects, right? It it builds camaraderie and physical fitness and self confidence and even you know, quick thinking. You can you can think quicker if you're a soccer player because you're used to adjusting constantly to the flow of the game. And there's no evidence that any of that is true. And of course, you could equally argue that sports is damaging. To bodies, as we know from football and gymnastics and and things, like, and does terrible things to people and justifies violence and, and hooliganism. And so, it's, it's striking to me that the the promoters of sport and even in the military and elsewhere are so sure of its positive benefits and seeming to ignore the, the, the possible negative effects. So then, the, why do soldiers participate again? There's the same kind of a story that. that one student of mine who's an, an air force colonel called it mandatory fun it was, why would you why would you do that and well it partly because it's mandatory but but some people throw themselves into it with enormous energy so it's ah, that's kind of the puzzle i'm trying to sort out and it, i can make it a funnier story by telling the, the real kernel of the of the story comes from my first book soldiers and citizens which talks about german veterans organizations after the war and kind of part one of the chapters is about the organizational ideology of each Separate veterans group. So they each developed kind of a justification for their existence. So the, the Gross Deutschland regiment, which fought largely in the East, its big banner idea is anti communism. We fought the Russians. We know what they were like. We're going to be your bulwark against communism. Um, the Africa Corps organization, of course, it had, maintains this myth of Rommel and the fair fight in the desert. And so the embodiment of that became a soccer match against the British Eighth Army that they would have every year at their annual get to get together. And the, the funny part is that by the late fifties, I think 1957 is the last game. The Germans are blown out seven to nothing. And like half the team is injured because German veterans are aging and the British eighth army stays 20 years old. So they're just getting blown out. So finally they give it up, but it was supposed to symbolize the fair fight, the their international reconciliation, fair fight in the desert, all that, all that, that they believe their organization stood for. So that kind of symbolic significance of of sport is what intrigues me.
1: Cool. Sounds fantastic. Well, we'll have, we'll get you back on once that's, uh, once that's at, well, let's hope it takes less yeah. <laughs> time
0: than, than this Ludendorff project or I'll be, I'll be an old man.
1: Well, renting an apartment in Ludendorff's head is a, a Herculean task. So our final question is, is there anything that you're currently reading or or listening to that our listeners might want to, or watching that our listeners might want to, might want to check out?
0: Okay. So, I have I have three books that I'm currently uh, working on and largely they're for fun. I mean partly because I'm doing so much reading for the um, for the sports project that it's driving me crazy. So I'm rereading Jitterbug Perfume by Tom Robbins, a novel from the from the mid-1980s, about which is which is about famously about beats. Um, that's a lot of fun. I'm reading collected works of James Baldwin. Uh, which is not nearly so fun. I mean, it, it's it's outstanding and excellent, but not nearly so fun. And that's partly just because of life, you know. And then in terms of history, I just got a copy of actually the first book is Julie Sneringer's Social History of Rock and Roll in Germany. I've, I'm a little bit behind on that one, but since I've I've kind sort of I know Julie so well, and we've I've read chapters of it and so forth. I'm, I've got that on my on the top of my reading list. Um, so those are the yeah, more than you ask for, but that's – I usually have more than one book going at a time just for variety.
1: Professor sneeringer was one of my favorite professors at Queens College. So, uh, Professor sneeringer yeah. if you're listening to this, we're reading your book. <laughs> shout out. <laughs> yeah, shout out indeed. <laughs> Jay, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you again for joining me today. My pleasure. And to all our listeners, this is Scott Lipkowitz. On behalf of New Books in Military History, thanks for tuning in.